and you holding us and knowing us. That's like never a thing for me. Wow. Never quiet. Good. Channel 12. Boom. Oh, hello. Wow. That was better than coffee. Turns out I did have something funny to say. Good morning. (laughs) All right. Uh, Well, you know, as we come to this passage in John chapter 10, I was originally going to try to find a really great Spurgeon quote for you about security, but here's the thing. I couldn't find a good one. So... Here's what I realize. I often tell people that I am not an anxious person. And then I realize that that's actually wrong. I I am an anxious person, but I'm not an insecure person. Uh, And if you struggle with insecurity, uh, you may be able to relate to what I'm just about to say. Uh, We often come to passages like John chapter 10. We come to the Bible, we come to a relationship with God, and we think, how could God love me? Now, that is where our insecurity rests. How could God love me? How can we know what God has said about himself? What has Jesus done? We come to this portion of the year as we're heading toward Easter. The History Channel is going to be coming up with some things that Jesus has said or, quote-unquote, not said. And they're going to basically pose the question of, is Jesus actually who he says he is? When we come to John chapter 10, This is one portion of Scripture where we very clearly see Jesus say not only who he is, but what he has come to do. So all of those History Channel scholars that say that Jesus never, without a shadow of a doubt, ever said anything about who he was or what he had come to do, they just need to open up to John's Gospel and see very clearly from the words of Jesus that Jesus has come to rescue sinners, that he is the Son of God, that he has come with the mission to accomplish God's will, to rescue and redeem God's people. Friends, I hope to encourage you and challenge you this morning. And I hope to do so with this main point. We are securely held in the hands of Christ. We are securely held in the hands of Christ. As we have been here in John's gospel over the last few weeks, Uh, We have been recapping chapters 1 through 8. We started in chapter 9 just a few weeks ago, and we have arrived now to chapter 10 after the scene where Jesus proclaimed last week that he was the great shepherd who has come to guard, care, lead, and guide his people. Today, we are going to see Jesus encounter the Jews again in the temple during the festival of dedication, and they're going to ask him, who do you say you are? And he's going to give them a plain answer, and with that, he's also going to give them a plain comfort. So here's what I hope to give to you in my outline today. How can we have security with God? I think that it happens in three ways. First, our security is in his identity. Our security is in his identity. Jesus is the Son of God. Second, our security is in his proximity. Our security is in his proximity. He is near to us. And finally, our security or lack of security hinges on our belief. Our security or therefore lack of security hinges on our belief. So with that, let's set the scene and we will go right into John 10 verses 22 through 42. So right here in verse 22, the word says, Then the festival of dedication took place in Jerusalem, 
and it was winter. Does anybody know what the festival of dedication was? Okay, you may have heard of the common uh, way that that's been modernly translated. It is called the festival of Hanukkah, okay? You guys know about Hanukkah? Okay, that happens before Christmas. That was a celebration in which the people of God would come and they would worship and bring gifts to the temple to celebrate the fact that God had raised up the temple place where they could go and worship him and be in his presence. So the festival of dedication has come. The people of God are bringing their gifts in. They're going to be a seven-day period where they're going to come and worship the Lord in the temple and thank him for the gift of having a place to come and meet with him and gather with him. And we see within this encounter that Jesus is going through this place that's called Solomon's Colonnade, okay? Has anybody encountered this particular location in Scripture elsewhere within their study of the Bible? Okay? Anybody? I'm going to give you an answer. Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, Peter, James, and John, after Jesus has ascended to uh, be with the, the Father at his right hand, they've proclaimed the gospel, and within that portion of Scripture, in Acts chapter 4, they've seen a bunch of people respond. They're going into the temple. They're proclaiming the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, that we can be right with God through repentance and faith, and we can respond in baptism. And it's there that as they're proclaiming the name of Jesus that Peter, James, and John are actually brought before the council, beaten, and then sent back to the disciples to proclaim the, what has happened in their proclamation of the good news. They go back and they celebrate the fact that they've been found worthy to honor the Lord by suffering for his name. So that's a nice little key piece of information for you, uh, something that's going to be important. I think that there's no mistake that John is highlighting this encounter and then it also pops up in the book of Acts. I don't think that's by coincidence. I think that's very important for your Bible reading as you go forward. So they come and they ask this question. That's what we get to see. He's in the temple. It's the festival of dedication. There's Jesus and the Jews. Those are the two groups of people that are highlighted here. So the Jews come with the question basically like this. How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Okay? They are fed up with trying to figure this out. So they, they come to Jesus and they say, Who are you? Tell us the truth and don't hold us back. So how does Jesus respond? He responds by telling us his identity and then showing us why his identity changes everything for us. So I'm going to actually kind of jump around the passage a little bit to build the point for you. So for, let's start right at verse 25. Look at that. Jesus says here, I did tell you, and you did not believe me. So to this point, what we can see in John's gospel is that Jesus has indeed revealed who he is. There are a number of places where Jesus has made claims about his identity. I'm going to read just a few of them for you. I actually have a list of about 20 different places that Jesus shows his identity in John's gospel. The first place that I get to see it is in John 1.51, where there Jesus tells Nathanael that he would see heaven opened and the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He speaks to Nathanael. In John chapter 3, Jesus is with Nicodemus, and he tells Nicodemus that the Son of Man has descended from heaven. So he's telling him right there, clearly, the Son of Man has come. In John chapter 5, 
Jesus referred to his father in a way that made the Jews realize that he was calling himself God and that he was making himself equal with God. And they were not happy with that. That's where we actually get to see this first attempt of them trying to stone the Son of God. In John 3 and 5, Jesus speaks of doing what he had seen and heard from the Father. Later on in John 5, Jesus asserted that the Father had given life in himself, that he had been given the authority to give life to others. That's John 5, verse 26. In John 5, in in verse 39, Jesus also said that the Scriptures bore witness about him and his identity. There's lots of things in John 5, like where Jesus says that he had come in the Father's name in verse 43. Or that in verse 46, that Moses had written about him. Or even in John chapter 6, where Jesus says that he has come to be the bread of life, the manna from heaven, that would sustain and feed God's people so that they could survive in the wilderness. Jesus even said to the people when they asked him uh, if the Son of Man would ascend, he said he has indeed ascended. He is going to ascend in this way. In John 6 verse 62. He said that his words were spirit and life, that his teaching was not from him, but from him who had sent him. In John chapter 8, as the the Jews are asking Jesus about his identity, he says, before I was, was I am. He calls himself by the redeeming, rescuing name of the Father. And then in John chapter 9, when the blind man asked Jesus who the Son of Man was, he plainly said to him, It is he who is speaking to you, and the man fell down and worshipped. The reality that comes with this question, though the Jews are denying that Jesus has revealed his identity, is indeed the fact that we see from the rest of John's gospel, Jesus is plain and clear about who he is. He is the Son of God. He continues to give us some clarity on this, In verse 31, right in verses 26 through 30, he's going to clarify some more, but especially see in verse 31, as the Jews pick up stones to stone him, verse 32, Jesus replies with a question and says, I've shown many good works from the Father, for which of these are you going to stone me? And they plainly reply with, well, we're not going to stone you because of your good works. We recognize that you've done good works. We're going to stone you because you're a man and you say that you're God. And so within this, as they come to confront Jesus to ask him, who are you? He says who he is. You did not listen to me. And then he poses a question to them and they actually respond with, well, you're claiming to be God. Friends, aren't we often people who hear things but don't actually want to hear them? Can't we be like the Jews in this situation? God, show me who you are. Show me what you've done. Show me the truth about my life, about your identity. And when God shows us, we go, I don't like that. That's how the Jews are responding here. It's not a matter of whether or not what Jesus is saying truthfully. It's a matter of whether or not they like what he has to say. What they're doing is they're placing themselves in the position of God. They're saying, hey, you know what? It's all good and all You can say what you want. That's true for you, but it's not true for me. Haven't we heard that line before in our lives? It's it's all true for you, but it's not true for me. Why? Because at the center of that 
issue is the pride of man where we think that what we have to say is the most important. And in this response, they're all offended that Jesus has said these things and he cuts again into their heart in verse 34. Jesus answers them and says, Isn't it written in the law, I said, you are God's? If he called those whom the word of God came to you God's, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say you are blaspheming to the one the Father set apart and sent into the world because I said, I am the Son of God? They want to take God at his word insofar as much as they like what God's word has to say. But Jesus responds with, doesn't the scripture say this? Can the scripture be broken? Now, they both agree. The Jews here and Jesus agree with the fact that scripture cannot be broken. That scripture is authoritative. That they need to live in light of the truth of scripture. And so what does Jesus do? They don't like that he called himself God. He shows them right from God's word. He takes the Bible and he lays it out for them and says, Does not the scripture say this? You don't like what I have to say? Well, this is what the scripture talks about. And he actually quotes Psalm 82, verse 6. So if you want to flip over there, let's flip over there real quick. Psalm 82, verse 6. It's a psalm from Asaph. It is in a really interesting portion of the the, the Psalter, um, full of praises, full of pleas, full of laments. But in Psalm 82... Asaph, as he writes, it's a really interesting way that it starts off right in verse 1. It says that God stands in the divine assembly. He pronounces judgment among the gods. So right here, God is identifying judgment upon who is actually with him and who's against him. He's exercising judgment and saying, these ones are worthy, these ones are not worthy, right? And in verse 2, it says, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? The writer of this psalm is, is in an experience where he's feeling like all of the world is being blessed while he is suffering. And he goes in verse 3, Provide justice for the needy and the fatherless. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and needy. Save them from the power of the wicked. Again, crying out, Lord, save your people from this moment. Verse 5, they do not know or understand. They wander in the darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. The world is in chaos. It's in darkness. And in verse 6, I said you are are gods. You are all sons of of the Most High. However, you will die like humans and fall like any other ruler. Rise up, God. Judge the earth, for all the nations belong to you. This is a psalm in which this psalm writer is crying out for God's justice. And when we see how Jesus is using that here in John 10, these Jews are crying out for justice on what they think is righteousness, stoning somebody who says that they think is blaspheming the name of God. And Jesus takes a very portion of Scripture that echoes that same cry and says, does not the Scripture say this, am I blaspheming? And the answer to that, that we find in this passage is Jesus is not blaspheming. Why? 
Because this is what God has proclaimed. So though they think that he is guilty of blasphemy, he actually shows them at the center of who he is that he is the fulfillment of what God has said. He appeals to Scripture based on the words, the grounds of what the Word says, that the idea, you are God's, you are sons of the Most High. This is speaking about those that belong to God. Second, he, he shows a position of confidence. Scripture cannot be broken. He and the Jews agree on this, right? And the third, he, he turns up the heat for them. And then he goes and says, so if you're proclaiming that I'm blaspheming, are you saying that what God has said is blasphemy? If God has said this, his word can't be broken, then is his word blasphemous? All they can do to respond with this is logically say no. Instead, what we find at the end of this passage is in verse 39 that they try to seize him. They try to get him, and they want to stone him because they don't like what he has to say. So while that revealing of his identity caused the Jewish people great conflict within their hearts, what we can find in it is that it causes us great confidence in ours. Why? Because our security rests in the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, but not only that, he's the Son of God who is near to us. Look at John 10, verse 26. But you do not believe me because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So not only does Jesus again reaffirm that he is the Son of God, connected with God Almighty the Father, he shows us how as the Son of God, he's the shepherd who cares for us. Now John, 22, or John 10, 22 through 42 is connected to John 10, 1 through 21. Right? So we can't just look at this passage in itself, isolated and say, well, you know, what is this all? He, he's given us in the first 21 verses a grounds for what we can expect of a good shepherd. A good shepherd is one who's going to lead his people. A good shepherd is one who's going to lay down his life for his people. And he reintroduces and echoes again here in these verses some things that are extremely important about a good shepherd and the relationship that he has to his sheep. Like first and foremost where he says, my sheep hear my voice. Those that belong to God know his voice. They know his word. His word has revealed to them exactly who he is. And in in the first 21 verses, Jesus gives us this illustration of the shepherd who enters into the pen when he actually has a relationship with the sheep and he calls out to them. They do what? They come up, they listen to him, and they follow him out into the pastures. But if you are a shepherd trying to shepherd sheep that do not belong to you, will they listen to your voice? The answer to that that we find in John 10 is, no, they will not. They won't follow shepherds whose voices they don't recognize. And so 
Jesus again reminds us, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. He knows each one of them personally. He knows what they need, what they struggle with, and everything that they have within their lives. He knows them. And they follow me. But he's not just a leader of the sheep. Notice, he is the shepherd who, in verse 28, gives them eternal life. The kind of pasture he leads them into is not just a pasture that will sustain them for the exact moment where they're hungry. It's a moment and satisfaction that they will have for the entirety of their lives. And beyond that, eternal life. He gives them eternal life. Not just what they need in the moment, but what they need for eternity. They will never perish. No one can snatch them out of his hand. So all of this begins, our security begins, not only with the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, but it continues in the fact that he is close to us and that he knows us. Friends, I've often come to moments in my life and thought, how could God know this. Anybody have the struggle when they were maybe not a Christian of thinking like, I've done all this in my life. How could God ever forgive me? Have you ever thought that? Okay. I have definitely thought that. Okay, I'm not going to come here as some sort of hypocrite and say that I've never had my, my moments of doubt. Right? I've had moments of going, how could God know this? Will you flip your Bible to Psalm 139? Please flip your Bible to Psalm 139 right now. When God says he knows his sheep, how does he know us? I think Psalm 139 gives us a picture into how God knows us. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know about it, Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. This wonderful knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty. I am unable to reach it. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I live at the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All the days, all my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God, how precious your thoughts are to me, how vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, I am still with you. You guys getting the point? How's God know us? Like nobody else. Before we were, he was and he knew us. 
That's what the psalm is telling us. Before we even came into physical being, he was forming us, making us, counting the hairs on our heads, forming our bones, our inward parts. That is the kind of knowledge that God has of us, his people. So those moments where you're struggling, you're thinking, how, God, how could, you, how could you work within me? Remember how he's made you, how he knows you. Hear this truth with confidence this morning, friends. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. Okay, here at Hebrew Church of Hope, we believe salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. We believe that you are made right with God through the work of Jesus. Okay? Guys, the gospel truth is this, that Jesus has come, he's died in our place, he was buried, and he was resurrected from the grave. Three days later, and all those who repent and believe in his work are saved. Now, at the core of that truth is this reality. You can't save yourself. You can't save yourself. Your works cannot save you. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. That we are spiritually dead apart from God. We are not able to actually make ourselves alive with God. Hear this news again from Jesus this morning. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. The only reason we're saved is because God is saving us. We can't save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. We can't make the way. If salvation was based upon our work, it would fail. Because it wouldn't be from God, it would be from us. But God gives us the gift of eternal life in his Son. God makes the way. We can only be saved because God has initiated. He's worked on our behalf to make a way for us to be saved. And in that, we hear this news that those he saves have eternal life and they will never perish and that no one will snatch them out of my hand. If you are a Christian who has repented of your sin, believed in the Lord Jesus to rescue you, friend, hear that good news today. That if you were, if it was up to you, you would be snatched out of the hand of God, but it's not up to you. God has saved you and he holds you, and he's going to hold you forever. Not just for this moment, but forever. He's holding you eternally. This is good news. How does this work? I can't even begin to scratch the surface of how of all of this works. Okay? I don't know. I'm not God. But I know what Jesus says right here, that he gives life eternally, and he holds on to those that he gives life to, and they will never perish. So, sure, I am well-versed in theological frameworks. I'm happy to give you conversations about that. A theological framework is from a man at best, but it's from God's word, truth that we can find here, that we can celebrate. But at the end of the day, I just want to hold on to these words that Jesus says, I give them life and they'll never perish. Praise God for the gift that we have in life in him, that he holds on to us. How does he do this? Well, verse 29 says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. 
So the Father, God the Father, gives to Jesus his sheep, and Jesus rescues his sheep and holds on to his sheep forever. What wonderful news for us. It gives me like all the more humpsfah as I think of that song, He Will Hold Me Fast. You guys know that? When I fear my faith will fail, what does that song tell us? He will hold me fast. When we get to the chorus, he will hold me fast. For my Savior has loved me so, he will hold me fast. Friends, why can we have security? Because God's holding us. He's the one holding us. So how do we respond to all of that? Well, this passage shows us two ways that people respond. It's the reality of Jesus' identity and his holding. People either respond by trying to stone him or by finding life in him. Listen, there are things that are complicated about the Bible. There are things that I don't fully understand. Right? I often have people talk to me about predestination, about, you know, what does God do with people that don't believe? I, I don't know. I don't perfectly know. But God does. God is perfect. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. So when I get to stand before him in eternity because of my faith in Christ alone, I'm going to go, God, I don't know how you work that out but I'm so glad that you did because I believe that you were faithful to your word. And there are going to be some people that may be there that may even surprise me where I'm like, oh, well, they had faith in you. That's what saved you, them, right? That's what saves us, faith in Christ alone. I don't know all the inner workings. I can't perfectly explain it, but I can rest in this. God is perfect and he gives life. So friends, that's enough for me. Is it enough for you? Think about this. If your security is in the identity of Jesus, that he is the Son of God, if your security is in the fact that he holds you, that's good news, right? But if we try to place our security in the Son of God in the fact that we hold ourselves, that's shaky ground, right? Because if we're honest, we're fleeting. I like to go from one thing to the next. I often change my mind. I have insecurities, anxieties, doubts. But praise God that he doesn't. So how do we respond? We respond by either believing or not. Here again from Jesus in verse 26 as he told them in verse 25, I told you and you didn't believe me. So the works that I do in my Father's name testify me about me, but you do not believe me because you are not my sheep. Those that don't belong to God don't believe him. And ultimately, what we see in verses 40 through 42, though it feels just like a blip of a transition, it's far more than that. It's a comparison for us to note. So when he departs, in verse 40, across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing earlier, 
As he remains there, many came to him and said, John never did a sign, but everything John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Now these Jews had the word. They had access to the Son of God. They saw him. They recognized his works. They recognized what he had said. But they weren't his sheep. And then we see, in light of that, Jesus goes to the Jordan. And he's ba- John the Baptist has been baptizing people there. And we don't know exactly who these people are, but it says many came to him and said, you know, John never did a sign. They heard about what had happened in the temple. And they say, but everything he said about you has been true. We believe. Believe, enter into eternal life. Don't believe eternal damnation. Those are the two options in the Bible. There's no in-between. Believe in Jesus and have life. Do not believe in him and have death forever. So friends, where's your security? Is it in you or in the Son of God who holds you and knows you and loves you and rescues you? Let's pray and ask God to give us knowledge. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. He is the good shepherd who has come to lay down his life for us. And as a church today, God, we are going to remember that work through the Lord's Supper. But now, Lord, before we even transition, I pray that your word would rest upon the hearts and minds of your people. I know I don't speak perfectly. I do not have all of the answers, but your word tells us who you are, what you have done, and what you care about. And so even if people are challenged by what I've shared with them this morning, from my own thoughts, God, I pray that they would come to this passage and let the passage speak, and that you, by their reading of that, would work in their hearts in their minds, to reveal yourself to them so that they may know that they're saved by you. May they rest in that comfort of being held by you. And God, for those of us that do know this truth, I pray that you would again encourage us, remind us, not just of our frailty, but of the security we have in Christ alone. We thank you for being the God who saves. We thank you for being with us. We thank you for the hope that we have in you alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.